Well, one of the things that is important here at New Life Church is that we uh, try and take God's Word and uh, uncover what is there. And we do that usually by starting uh, at the beginning of uh, a book and going uh, through and not skipping parts of it, but uh, admitting that all of it is there, all of it is important, all of it is part of what uh, God wants us to get. And so this morning we are going to resume our study of the book of Matthew. Um, we started it a couple years ago, and we will perhaps complete it, I don't know, before I retire, maybe. And so we're just uh, committed to really seeing what God has to say and what is there. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. The Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as king. Jesus is here establishing his kingdom. There were a few kingdom citizens there that he gathered. He called them disciples. Uh, we now have a few small kingdom outposts. We call them churches. And so there is really... Um, an invisible or small kingdom that we don't completely see or understand. Yet, one day, the kingdom will be in full bloom. And we will see that kingdom in full bloom in um, the glorious presence of Christ as He makes all things new. And what this is not talking about is saying, good luck, do your best now, one day you'll get to heaven. That's not the message here. The message is that Jesus has come to make a new way of living, a new way of being fully human, to redefine for us what it means to be uh, a fully alive or to have human flourishing. Jesus is changing what we see as the way that human life is to be lived. We saw it first, perhaps, and most clearly, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began to teach about what made for a blessed life. And it surprised us. It wasn't what most people would consider to be a life full of blessing. It, instead, it was a life that's poor in spirit, a life that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a life that is meek, a life that is peacemaking. And he went on to talk about a number of things, including our relationship to money, family, anger, lust, all those things. In other words, he defined a life that is upside down from what people are used to thinking of as the good life. Now, this upside down good life sometimes comes into conflict with the vision of the good life that other people would hold. The vision of King Jesus sometimes comes into conflict with the vision of other kings. And today, in Matthew chapter 14, we run into a test case where these two visions of the world collide.
collide. One vision is epitomized in John the Baptist. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about him, but you might be familiar with him because he was the forerunner of Jesus and was the one who baptized Jesus. The other is epitomized in a person named Herod Antipas. In Herod, this Herod is one of the surviving sons of the guy who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This is the same Herod that became friends with Pontius Pilate during the trial of Jesus. And he had all the power and all of the things necessary so that he could have everything he wanted with respect to his vision of life. And so as we read Matthew 14, I want you to keep in mind this question. Who really had the good life? Was it Herod? Or was it John the Baptist? We'll come back to that. Let's read Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. Because they held John to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it. And because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be done. He sent and had John beheaded in in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So this is not the most boring, plain, vanilla text in the Bible. In fact, if they were going to have to... They were going to have to need to make a cut somewhere in the Bible to get a PG rating. They might cut this one. Because this is awful. It starts off with Herod thinking that there's a ghost. The ghost of John the Baptist. And his guilty conscience is spooked by the things that Jesus is doing. And it really does sort of inform us that your conscience can either be spooked by Jesus or healed by Jesus. That a guilty conscience is haunted by the past or it's healed by the cross. 
John and Herod form two extreme examples of these two kingdoms uh, and the lifestyles inherent in them working themselves out. So it tells us that John, or excuse me, that Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now the fame of Jesus had, Jesus had been hitting the newspapers. They had learned about Jesus. He'd gone up to Galilee, been at his hometown, and they had nothing to do with him, so he went elsewhere. But in his hometown and everywhere around, they heard of his healings and of his encounters with demons in the miraculous things that he was doing, and that fame made it to the ruler, Herod. Herod could not explain it, so he panicked and said, this must be John the Baptist. There's no other explanation. He has been raised from the dead. That's why all the miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Because he must not, he's not normal. He must be John the Baptist. That was his explanation. In other words, he was haunted by John. Now, Herod is a bewildering figure who shows up every now and then in the gospel story. The first Herod that we meet in the gospels uh, is referred to as Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who rebuilt the temple for the Jews. He was probably the most powerful Herod. He was also crazy. He killed the babies in Bethlehem, you may remember, because he thought Jesus was among them. Turns out that Bethlehem was in the shadow, really, of his summer palace, and really within eyesight of a line of sight of his summer palace. And he sent his soldiers over there to kill the babies. And you might say, that's terrible that he would kill the babies. And it is. But by his standards, it was just another day at the office. Because he killed his own sons. Because he got a little nervous that they might somehow overthrow him and take over the kingdom. And so... The sons that survived their father split the area of jurisdiction, his area of jurisdiction, into parts, and that's why they're called tetrarchs. They're, they're not full-blown kings. In fact, Rome kind of liked to remind them they're not real kings, uh, though sometimes the, the adjective king will show up in front of their names even in the Bible. But uh, technically, they were... Uh, Monarchs who had small little jurisdictions. That's really all that they had. And we know from these first two verses then that John the Baptist was like the ghost of Christmas past for Herod. That he couldn't really deal with what he knew to be happening in the world and he was haunted by what had gone on before. And his only explanation for Jesus is that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. That would explain the outlandish miracles. And you see, that haunting, this guilty conscience that will not be relieved, sets us up 
for the flashback. The rest of the text is just a flashback to what had happened with John the Baptist. Herod was afraid of John's ghost. Yet someone greater than John the Baptist had come, and Herod did not know what to do with him. And so if you look then at verses 3 through 11, you'll notice how afraid Herod was of everything, not just the ghost. He had seized John, verse 3, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Because John had been saying it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, Herodias was at the same time his niece and the wife of his brother. Which for normal people might cause some kind of moral complication. But for Herod not so much. And so John the Baptist simply said, you can't be the king of the Jews, the one who wants to be the king of the Jews, and relate to the Jews and pretend that this is okay. It's not lawful for you to have your sister-in-law and niece in the same person as your wife, I'm just going to say. And so then you begin to notice the fear that Herod has. He feared the people. And then later on, after the dance, he feared his guests. He feared his wife. And he had John beheaded. Now, I don't know how you throw birthday parties. I hope they don't look like this one. Really, most of the Jews didn't throw birthday parties. This is a little bit unusual. But because it's an unusual party, it reminds me of another party. There aren't very many parties really talked about in the Bible. But the fact that this one featured dancing by the queen, or by, excuse me, by the princess, this dancing by the princess that everyone loved it reminds me of a different party where the queen was supposed to be dancing. For those of you that were born in the Senate, I'm not talking about an Abba song. But you may remember that the book of Esther began with a comedic and ridiculous scene at a party. The book of Esther is in your Old Testament and it was during the exile. And the description of this party is really comical. There are lavish decorations, the gold drinking goblets, even the curtains are described in detail. The, the party lasts half of a year? Everything makes it seem like it's an out-of-control uh, drinking binge. And then the point, the conflict in the book of Esther is that at the height of the party, the king asks the queen to come in and dance for all of his guests. And she refuses. And the refusal of the queen to dance really causes the rest of the story of Esther to unfold. 
Now, I bring up Esther because the book of Esther is interesting. It presents to us a problem even as we read it, namely that the book of Esther is in your Bible, yet it never mentions God. The whole book is described without talking about God, if you can imagine. And really, you go through most of that book, really up until the, the absolute climax of it, and it looks like God is not involved, and things go from bad to worse. And I bring Esther into this because the problem that Esther and Mordecai and the others in that book had is that it looks like God has lost control of the situation. It looks like God isn't involved in the suffering of His people. And now here in Matthew chapter 14, you have a grown man's birthday party where the central attraction will not be the dancing of the queen, but the dancing of the princess. And it's the dancing of the princess that causes the drama to unfold in the um, story here in Matthew. And here in Matthew, I want you to consider really what this looks like from the point of view of John the Baptist. Because here you have righteous John the Baptist imprisoned and a king or tetrarch who is able to do whatever he wants. And you're just doing some surface level evaluation of things and you're saying, hmm, I wonder which one God favors. And you begin to realize it might not be as obvious as you'd like it to be. Because here John the Baptist rots in prison, and God seems nowhere to be found. And not only that, you know, we, we like stories, like Esther, really, where God comes through in the end and it all turns out great. And we're willing to bear with a story like that. But then you have John the Baptist rotting in prison, and how does that end? With his head on a platter. And we want to say, that's not how it's supposed to go. And it isn't. But the question really is, who had the better life, Herod or John? Which life represents human flourishing? Herod or John. Now it is interesting because Herod, I mean, well, let's just stay with John for a minute. I mean, John's in prison, rotting. Even when he's out of prison, his life doesn't seem that great to me. I mean, the guy wears camel hair, eats locusts, wild honey. I mean, it's not that great. Herod, on the other hand, lives in the palace and throws parties. And what we're told here in Matthew 14 is that he uh, ordered John executed on account of Herodias. Now, it's pr probably worth my taking a couple minutes to at least put out there, 
the relationships in Herod's family. Now, this, they're all complex and weird, and if you get lost in these relationships, don't worry about it. But Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Okay? Herod the Great was the father of Herod Antipas, the one we're talking about here in the text. Herodias was his granddaughter. Herodias then married her uncle, Herod Philip, who happened to be the half-brother of Herod Antipas. And so Herod Philip and Herodias had a daughter, Salome. Put a pin in that. Herod Antipas, on the other hand, married a princess from another country who was the daughter of a king, and uh, that was unhappy because while he was married to her, he fell in love with his niece, Herodias. They agreed to marry. Herodias left uh, half-brother Philip for Herod Antipas, and as you might expect, the daughter of this other king got wind of it, ran home to daddy, and he promptly went to war with Herod and defeated Herod. Herod lost much of his kingdom uh, initially until the Romans um, intervened and got it back for him. So needless to say, this was a com uh, complex and tangled situation if um, probably to best understand it, you would need to like really understand Jerry Springer or some other weird you know TV show. Um, but that's what happened. That's who these players are. In other words, he is a mess. He is a mess. He has power. He has money. He has more women than he knows what to do with. In fact, they ruin his life. And John the Baptist rots in prison. Because John had told him very clearly that it's not okay for you, <laughs> for you to have your niece, who's also your sister-in-law, as your wife. That is contrary to Jewish law and will not help you be the king over the Jews. I'm just going to say. So John tells him that, throws him in prison. And Herodias, who is at the center of this story, hates that, hates John for what he's telling Herod, wants him killed, and then seizes upon this birthday party as her opportunity. And, of course, we know what happens. But now I just want you to step back for a second and, again, contrast John the Baptist and Herod. Okay, so imagine you're John the Baptist, you're a godly person, you're stuck in an awful situation, and God seems to have forgotten you. What do you do? Do you wonder if you'll be delivered? Do you wonder, is it worth it? Do you wonder, why would I follow Jesus when it doesn't look like it pans out very well? I know so many people, and I've talked to people even this week, who are suffering and they're asking that question. Why is there no relief? 
God, where are you? Why have you not helped me? And there is no guarantee of deliverance or healing or any help. John, of course, is the righteous person in this situation. And it doesn't compute for us. But then there's another person. There's Herod, who's guilt-ridden, ashamed of what he's done, haunted by his past. And he finds that nothing he can do. No money, no party, no woman can assuage his guilt and sense of shame. And not only that, the people in his life are dangerous. So what do you do if you're Herod? What do you do with the specter of a ghost of John the Baptist doing miracles in your backyard? He didn't have any answers. I think it's easy for us to look at Herod and think, he's awful. I'd never be like him. But really, one of the chief differences between Herod and many of us is that Herod has the resources to give full vent to his passions and his desires. Whereas most of us really can't afford to do that, and we know it. And so there are external things, not our own heart, not the goodness within us that we would like to think, but it's other things that stop us from being as awful as Herod. And I worry that were we to have the resources and the power that Herod had, we might not be much better than him anyway. So what does he do then to stop the guilt? What does he do to escape the shame? What about you? Maybe there are things back there in your past that haunt you, and they come up every now and then, and you're not sure when it's going to come up next, and that makes you terrified. And so... We struggle to see life as Christ would see it. What is the good life? Is it really this life of fulfilling all our wishes and desires, or is it maybe some life rotting in prison? It's not so easy. And so what are we going to do to get rid of the guilt and the shame? I mean, really, we haven't had kingdoms to worry about or wars to fight. Most of us don't have the tangled moral situation of Herod, but we have things in our past that we have to figure out. And what are we going to do? What are people going to think? And 
And so it isn't just the thing that we've done, it's the fear surrounding it that other people will find out and that will become an issue. In other words, Herod is now in a trap of his own making. His conscience doesn't allow him to be free from the fear of people and there's nothing he can do to free himself from the fear of God. And so given that, he capitulates and kills John. So before I leave Herod, I just want to ask you the question, what can you do to fix your conscience? If, if you've got something back there like that, when you can't make the guilt go away and you're not sure the consequences will go away. See, I think Herod was probably thankful that John didn't come back to life But really, it's good news for us that Jesus is here, isn't it? Someone greater than John is here. What threatened to be bad news for Herod is good news for us. And I would remind you, Herod had a chance. He had a chance to get this squared away and to deal with his conscience. He met Jesus. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 23. Yet he doesn't deal with his conscience. He asks Jesus to do tricks for him instead. He wants to play games with Jesus. And in the end, condemns the only person that could release him from the condemnation of his conscience. And in their encounter, Jesus doesn't say a word to Herod. So Herod never did get the burden lifted. But if the burden of a guilty conscience is on you, what do you do? How do you get that off? Is there ever any relief? Well, in the words of Colossians, we're told that Jesus, or that God took the the, uh, list, really, of accusations against you and he nailed it to the cross so that all those things that really represent the past in the haunting all of that has been nailed to the cross so that the the weight of it is on Jesus and not on you Jesus on the cross took all of that guilt and shame Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, tells us really how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will He purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, one of the things that happened on the cross of Jesus is to take the guilt, to take the shame, to heal your conscience. See, one of the things, if if maybe you have some sort of program where you want to be good, and if you're good, then God will help you, and if you're better, God will help you more. Maybe you think that that's the way that religion works. The the reality of that is that you think that's going to work for today or for tomorrow, but that can't take care of the past. To take care of the past 
You need the cross of Jesus. That's the only place that the past can be dealt with. And that's what the Bible tells us happens when Jesus died on the cross. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so while Herod was unwilling, Jesus could have solved his problem. And so my question for you is, are you willing? Will you take those things in the past and will you give those to Jesus that He might cleanse your conscience and take away your burden? Well, the story here ends simply in verse 12. The disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. It's a simple ending, isn't it? They buried John and they told Jesus. That's all there is. Since we're making the contrast, though, between John and Herod, makes me wonder, who buried Herod? In fact, really, who wasn't happy to see Herod go? Pretty much everyone was glad he was gone. And yet, not so much the people that John knew. And so, who had the better life? Really, who had the better life? John or Herod? That's the question that haunts me. Because it isn't very easy to solve in this case. Because both are so extreme. Now, I have to come back to the question, then, how do you answer that question? How do you answer the question, who had the better life, John or Herod? On what criteria will you base the answer? Certainly, Herod had more money. Herod had more success. Herod had more women. Herod had more fame. Herod lived longer. Yet, he was haunted and miserable and at war his whole life. Maybe, maybe you step back and you say, you know what? What really will make it clear about who had the better life might be the evaluation that Jesus puts on a life. It isn't really how I evaluate it. How's my bank account? How are all my other things? But how does Jesus evaluate a life? Jesus didn't say a word to Herod. But when he began to talk about John, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 11. He said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus' evaluation is that John's life was better than Herod's. And, and Jesus then says, John's life isn't even as good as the life 
of those who will invest themselves in his kingdom. You give yourself to the kingdom of heaven, your life will be better than John's. You will be greater than John. Jesus' evaluation isn't the surface evaluation. How good does the temple look? How beautiful are the women? His answer instead is, really, what is the heart like and is this person in the kingdom? Is this person living for something greater than Herod was living for? So I would suggest to you that you evaluate your life like Jesus evaluates a life. The Bible tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And does Jesus' evaluation of your life matter more to you than the pleasure and power of Herod? I hope it does. And I hope you recognize, too, that if you are dealing with that heavy, haunting conscience... I want you to know that Jesus can unburden you this morning for sure. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says it as simply and as clearly as any Bible verse in the whole Bible. It says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing of that past happens when you trust in Jesus to forgive you. And so I just want to invite you again, as I do almost every week, to trust in Jesus. Not just for your future and your present, but also for your past. That you might be free from what is back there. And that you might be hopeful for what is ahead. And you might look to Jesus for the, the proper evaluation of your life. Will you join me as we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we need you today. We need you for little things and big things that are haunting our consciences. We need you when we're languishing in some undesirable circumstance. And Father, would you be close to us? Would you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us? And Father, would you help us to orient our lives around your kingdom that we might pursue flourishing in your kingdom instead of pretending in Herod's kingdom. And Lord, we need your help to trust in the things that are unseen, not in the things that are seen. Will you help us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.